Let's see how Asian markets are reacting to everything that's been going on over the last day or so. First of all, in Australia, uh, the SX200 is down about 2.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 1.4%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea, not surprisingly, also in deep in negative territory, down 1.3%. And the Hang Seng is going to follow them when it opens at 8, uh, 9.30 this morning. Looks like it will open about one and a third percent lower, according to the futures markets. That will slice about 330 points off the Hang Seng Index. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is also slipping a little bit further in Asian trading. It's at $39.76 a barrel. Uh, gold also down a couple of dollars as well at $1,930 an ounce. Not much movement in the currency markets. The US dollar a tad lower against the Japanese yen at 105.9. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please stay tuned for Back Chats coming up after the news with Hugh Chiverton and Nicholas Gordon. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Sunny intervals, occasional showers, one or two thunderstorms at first. The thunderstorm warning is in force. It is going to be hot. The maximum temperature will be about 31 degrees. And there'll be occasional showers and thunderstorms in the next few days. The temperature right now, 27 degrees, 89% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. A tourism professor says opening up travel bubbles with other countries won't happen quickly and will be very difficult to arrange. The government has said it's in discussions with 11 countries on the topic, including Singapore, Japan, Thailand, Germany and France. Professor Brian King from the Polytechnic University's School of Hotel and Tourism Management says travel bubbles in the Baltic region and the European Union have had mixed success. He told RTHK the government should focus more on Macau and the Greater Bay Area as tourism will probably restart closer to home. The industry is on its knees at the moment. You know, it's, it's 99% uh, down. We had 30 million outbound visitors uh, from Hong Kong last year trips. Uh, so I, I guess there's a desire by the government to send some positive news about, about the future. Um, but obviously it's going to be very hard to sort out all the bureaucratic and other political concerns for each of these countries. So it's a little bit of a wish list at this stage, I'd say. An infectious disease expert says it would be better to relax social distancing measures once the government has finished its COVID-19 community testing program. Dr Joseph Jung was commenting after the government announced an easing of measures from Friday, which include allowing a maximum of four people at public gatherings and to sit together in restaurants and the opening of some leisure venues. Swimming pools, saunas, karaoke's and bars remain closed. Dr Jung says Hong Kong is still finding coronavirus cases with no known source. It will be better for releasing or uplifting the social distancing after the citywide mass testing on the COVID-19 because by that time we have a more clear pictures on how good we are right now in terms of the number of cases of assignment asymptomatic COVID-19 cases in the community. The government's testing scheme finishes on Friday, but it's suggested it may extend it. The British government is to ban social gatherings of more than six people across England after a spike in coronavirus infections. The measures come into effect from Monday. They'll apply to both indoor and outdoor gatherings, restaurants and public places. Here's the BBC's Hugh Pym. 
Downing Street said the new policy followed a discussion between the Prime Minister and police chiefs who called for the rules on social contact to be simplified. The chief medical and scientific advisers had agreed that urgent action was needed because of a sharp rise in new virus cases reported daily. Socialising by people in their 20s and 30s is said to be a factor in the steep rise in local case numbers. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chewis and your co-host today is Nicholas Gordon. Nicholas, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, foreign journalists in the crossfire and artists in Hong Kong trying to make a living. Two Australian journalists were rushed out of China uh, the other night after Chinese police sought to question them, their employers said yesterday. The withdrawal of the ABC's Bill Bertels and Australian Financial Review correspondent Michael Smith came shortly after China detained a high-profile Australian journalist working for its state-run CGTN TV network. Separately, American journalists in the mainland have been denied new press cards after Beijing complained that the US had delayed and denied the visas of about 30 Chinese journalists and expelled 60 in March. Limited visas for all Chinese journalists to a maxi- maximum of 90-day stay in May and not approved visa extensions for any of them. Why then have journalists become a target as conflicts between China and other countries intensify? Did Trump start it all? Are the visa denials in Hong Kong part of the same conflict? What can journalists do in situations such situations? And is there a significant difference between state and private media? Uh, let us know your thoughts, your answers to all those questions. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bank Chat on RTHK Radio 3, or you can call us, 233-88266 is the number, 233-88266. Or you can email bankchat at rthk.hk, and we'll do our best to read out and not mangle your messages, bankchat at rthk.hk. And after 9.15, should the government be doing more to help out performers affected by the closure of nearly all venues around town? Joining us for our first discussion, we have with us now Ilaria Maria Sun. Hello, writer based and journalist based uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Mark O'Neill, an author and China expert. Chris Young will be uh, joining us later as well from the uh, Journalists Association, we hope. Um, Mark, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us once again. Um, it, 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 this, the way that um, journalists are kind of on the front line, it seems, of, the, of, of this exchange between uh, now Australia and uh, the US and, and China, is that relatively unusual for journalists to be uh, involved oh, yes. in this way? Oh, yes, it is, because this uh, contradiction that you mentioned between the state journalist employed by China and the private journalist employed by Western countries in China... This has always existed. That's always how it's been. And both sides accepted it because of the different systems. And China has followed a policy of reciprocity. So you have 10 Chinese reporters in in Germany, for instance, and that means that the German media can send 10 reporters to, to China. That's always been the case. So I think... The, the incidents involving the Chinese, the Australian and American journalists, unfortunately, are a result of the, the war between the two countries, uh, China and Australia, China and the US. Now, in the case of Australia, uh, the government has been very aggressive this year towards China as regards the COVID uh, pandemic, finding the course of it. It's told its citizens 
that there may be subject to arbitrary commission within China. And Beijing is very angry about this. And as we know, it's taking steps against, China, against Australian products. Uh, and it knows that Australia is economically very dependent on China. Many uh, Australian exports go to, to China. And therefore, Australia is weaker than the U.S. is, so it can go after Australia. And the two who left this week, they were the last two Australians working in China for Australian media. So the only Australian journalists we have in China now are working for other media. So, so yeah, I think it's extremely unfortunate. The journalists are not the cause of this dispute, but they are the victims. Um, I'd like to kind of bring in a historical angle here. Um, I guess, what's the history of foreign correspondence in China? And I guess also, uh, how did people used to report on China before the country opened up and before, you know, formal relations were restored? And I guess the final part of that is, what's the new, like, are we going to have to look back to that history when, as foreign media wants to report on China? Well, in the Maoist period, there were no foreign journalists in China at all. And they only started to return to China after Mao's death and the opening up. And the deal, as I say, was always reciprocal. China wanted to send its reporters, Xinhua, the People's Daily, to Europe, Japan, the United States. So the deal was one for one. So that's how it started. But, you know, the, in the communist thinking, not only Chinese thinking, but Soviet Vietnamese thinking. There is no such thing as objective journalism. You know, all the journalists who work for the Chinese Soviet media or the Vietnamese media, they are state employees. They work for the government. So when the foreign reporters arrived in China, the Chinese government looked at them with great suspicion and <clears throat> didn't really respect this notion of objective journalism. And, you know, Chinese reporters, they write two kinds of stories. One kind of story is published in a newspaper or on a website. And they also write what they call naval internal reports. And these are reports read for officials of the Communist Party. And the most high-grade naval reports are maybe read by only 100 people. Uh, that is to say, they write the real story in these naval reports, whereas what appears in the People's Daily or the Guaman Daily is, is the most superficial report that's been heavily censored. So when Chinese officials meet foreign reporters, what they say to them is, uh, what are your naval reports? What are your real reports? And the foreign reporters say, well, no, everything I write is published. You can read it. You go to our website, buy our newspaper, you can see what I've written. And the Chinese officials shake their heads and say, well, yes, uh, yeah, we've read that. But what are you really writing? You know, what are you writing? Because they think they're writing something different, more precise and more revealing to the leaders of their own governments. So, you know, there's a basic difference in, in, in view. So when the foreign reporters arrived in China in the 80s, they were put in special compounds. They couldn't live where they wished. These compounds are guarded 24 hours a day by armed police. Uh, Chinese, ordinary Chinese cannot enter these compounds. Uh, they were under surveillance all the time. Their phones were tapped. Their mobiles were tapped. 
and their movements were largely followed. Um, that's been the practice ever since the 1980s. Now, in the, in the last five years, this surveillance has become more intense and reporting in China has become even more difficult. Uh, for instance, if you want to go to Xinjiang or Tibet, which are the two most sensitive stories in China, it's virtually impossible to get a visa. So the only way you can go to these places is clandestinely. And in effect, this means that only ethnic Chinese with a, with a foreign passport who are working for the foreign media are able to go because they can get in there uh, relatively unnoticed. Now, you may recall uh, in Hohauta, the capital in Mongolia, there have been demonstrations about the use of the Mongolian language in schools and its replacement by Mandarin. And the LA Times reporter called Alice Su, she went there to report this. And because she's a Muslim Chinese, she was able to get there uh, unnoticed. But as soon as she appeared on the streets, you know, interviewing the protesters, uh, trying to understand what was going on. She was immediately arrested and sent back to Beijing. So it, 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 it's very difficult to report uh, on, as I say, uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, or anywhere where there's a conflict or a social protest, anything that's socially sensitive. Would it be fair to say that journalists in the past have been kind of treated a little bit like like neutrals, um, kind of given a given a pass to some extent, um, but that Trump had a point in recognising CGTN employees and China Daily journalists and so on as, as state state workers uh, working for on behalf of the uh, of the Chinese government, uh, producing propaganda, uh, uh, not reflect not necessarily reflecting uh, what was going on or. Always having in mind, um, you know, who they were working for. But on the other hand, um, that I mean, yourself, when you look at articles in the New York Times or m much of the Australian media, you must recognise that it's relentlessly negative. That there is, it's it's a barrage of criticism, isn't it, uh, against China? There's very, very little good news that's ever reported or positive things to say about China. So there's a, there's a, there's an argument to be made that uh, there's also a considerable amount of uh, bias, a lack of objectivity. Uh, in the Western coverage of China. Well, you're completely right. And, uh, you know, just to repeat what I said before, this, this disconnect between China having state reporters abroad and the, the foreign media having private reporters in China, that's always been the case. That's, that's, not, that's nothing new. What Trump was saying is something that's been the case for 30 years. Um, but you're right. The Chinese view is that the Western media coverage of China is very biased. Uh, what's the slogan? Good news is no news, bad news is news. So if you read the, especially the New York Times, Washington Post, yeah, their news of China is, is um, 80 to 90 percent negative. Now, I would say the Financial Times is more neutral because it's a business newspaper. So it has many stories about the stock exchange, big companies, MNA, and this sort of economic news is much more neutral. It's not pro or anti-China, it's just reporting what's going on. So I think Asian regards the FT as more fairer, whereas it does regard most of Western media as very biased and against China. And if you only read that, 
you get this very negative uh, image. And as we've seen um, under President Xi, you know, China has become much more aggressive, more uh, proud of itself, more feeling that it's got to stand up, stand up, stand up for itself, and it's not willing to accept it. So this is why this uh, pressure on the foreign leader in China, in China has intensified in the last three to four years. And where does Hong Kong stand in all of this? Well, previously, as you, as you know, Hong Kong and the mainland were treated separately. So visas for the mainland were one thing, and visas for Hong Kong were something else. And it was very easy for foreign journalists to get visas to work here, which is why many Western media have their Asia-Pacific headquarters here in Hong Kong as well as the reporters here reporting on things going in Hong Kong. And unfortunately, that has now changed. And it would appear that the issuance of visas in Hong Kong now is not anymore controlled by the same rules as before, not, not controlled by the Hong Kong immigration as it was before. And so uh, the issuance of uh, visas to U.S. journalists here will now be considered in the same way as issuing visas for Americans in mainland China as a whole. And, of course, this, this is very bad news for media here, and um, I would expect that some of them would move some of their operations from Hong Kong to other places in Asia, because if you can't be sure that you can appoint the staff you need, well, you choose a place where you can Okay, Mark, I, I know you have to go. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this morning. Um, some comments uh, on Facebook. TC says, I think distinguishing private and state media outside mainland China is meaningless. For example, compare RTHK, brackets Hong Kong's state media, and Phoenix TV, Hong Kong private media, as stated by its White House correspondent in March, particularly what they report. That's uh, from uh, TC. Uh, Matthew says, the CCP's revolutionary national anthem in invokes China to move forward. Yet somehow the party's strongest, most confident leader in decades seems to be taking the country and the world backwards at an accelerating pace. For the first time since the 1970s Mao era, there are now no accredited Australian journalists permitted inside mainland China, and those from many other countries have already been expelled. A couple of days ago, it was reported that the party will test a civilised behaviour code as an evolution of the health code digital surveillance system it launched under cover of the pandemic. In the meantime, yesterday, the party held an event to celebrate the leadership of President Xi in successfully defeating the virus, just as the global death toll reaches 900,000 with immeasurable global economic devastation. This could only possibly be viewed and celebrated as moving forward in some dystopian cultural revolution equivalent alternative universe. That is from Matthew. Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, Ilaria Maria Sala, uh, good morning to you. Thanks, thanks for, for, for joining us. Um, uh, as somebody as a correspondent who's worked in China and, and in Hong Kong uh, widely, what, what do you make of this latest round of um, the, the, these actions? Uh, uh, these Australians weren't exactly expelled from uh, China, uh, were they? But what does it tell us, do you think, about the state of relations? They weren't exactly expelled, although... The reason why they were um, first taken inside the court and the embassy um, of Australia and then um, made to fly back to Australia was because expulsion is one 
Okay, so uh, we'll also have with us uh, Chris Young from the Hong Kong Journalists Association. Chris, good good morning to you, uh, good morning. Uh, and thanks for, for joining us. Uh, w- how would you understand the situation now uh, in, in Hong Kong? Uh, is there are there problems? Are there serious problems? We've heard of sort of scattered cases of foreign correspondents operating uh, in here. Are there problems, are there significant yeah. problems for foreign correspondents operating in Hong Kong? What's the situation here now? Well, um, I think there's a growing air of um, unease and uncertainty and um, about, say, um, their work environment. Um, and it's the immediate question, of course, is the unusual delays uh, in their 
know that that's happening, and um, there, there, there was already a uh, reported case uh, of a free press uh, editor uh, being rejected with uh, with that um, application uh, with no obvious with no obvious reason, and uh, and then uh, a lot of foreign uh, foreign media and um, say editors or, or correspondents are having similar a similar problem. Um, uh, we, we know that the Foreign Correspondents Club um, has been repeatedly, say, uh, writing um, to the government, from the chief executive to the, chief, to the CS, to the immigration department, uh, seeking for answers on policies, um, uh, because it, it is uh, it's, it's different from the, uh, the, the previous policy, because uh, that's something any, say, foreign media organizations need, need to know. Uh, what exactly now the policy uh, after the implementation of the national security law, which is the obvious reason for the change, uh, but no answer. So, um, so I think uncertainty. And then uh, we 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 wrote what happened in mainland China. Uh, those uh, Australian cases uh, are are quite uh, weird, and uh, because uh, it's related to national security investigation. So I think that uh, has added uh, not just uncertainty but fears uh, to foreign correspondents here. Um, um, so uh, the immediate question is work visa, and then the the the, the more serious problem of uh, what 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 would be like say working uh, with the national security in, in law in in, in place. And I guess how how is the local press corps in Hong Kong seeing some of these high profile cases involving foreign involving foreign correspondents, whether in Hong Kong or in China? Um, well, certainly uh, that has deepened worries. Even though some will say uh, um, that's their problem in the sense that the foreign correspondents, but uh, but I think journalists feel that. Um, uh, we share kind of we share the same fate with uh, with the national security threat uh, be becoming uh, more real um, more real than than, than it was uh, when a few months ago or even uh, on, on on the day when it was implemented. Uh, we we what what happened in Apple Apple Daily uh, and then the work we I guess the argument would be that journalists have been putting themselves increasingly kind of in the front line themselves by uh, by participating in politics and by showing bias in, in in their coverage, and so therefore they're they're fair game when you get this um, when you get this uh, dispute between superpowers. Well, uh, you see, how, I think it depends on the question of uh, say what's the lie between our media and what they see as uh, pol- politics. Um, I, I would say that media, media organizations, um, say, or journalists, um, say, uh, just do what, what they have been doing, uh, say, writing stories, interviewing people, carrying uh, articles. Um, the next, say, 
this uh, Jimmy Lai is a person with different roles and um, and uh, activities, and is running a media, and then um, he's active in a sense in in, in politics. Uh, so if um, well, if, if what he what he did in politics uh, now face um, say um, uh, legal problems, uh, that's that 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 part shouldn't say uh, mix up with um, with the media work. I mean, or the media or the media organizations coverage or reports. But that, but now it seems that uh, that that's that's been mixed. I think that that's a, that's a that's a worry for uh, well, not just I would say mixed digital, but but other media as a whole. Okay. Well- that, that what they what they report could could uh, uh, could, could could become trouble. Okay. Uh, a comment from uh, Lou who says, uh, I'm speechless. I don't know how Australia can justify its criticism of Hong Kong when the government is introducing even more draconian and outright shocking national security law. Australian journalists will have a lot to worry about back home in Australia. The plan to give the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation wide powers to question anyone about politically motivated violence goes much further than the recent Chinese security legislation on Hong Kong. An inquiry in Australia has heard. David Neal from the Law Council Australia told a recent in- parliamentary inquiry that it was a vast expansion on the current laws. At the moment, ASIO was only allowed to detain people for questioning on terrorism-related offences. And there's a link to uh, a story about that. That's a a comment from Lou. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Tom says, Icarus Wong was quite a good guest yesterday. He didn't repeat one or two uh, simplistic political statements over and over as a response to every question, as many Yellow Camp guests do. But actually brought up some good points. Reading Bill Bertel's own report of the events on ABC News, he was politely asked some questions about his reporting on Hong Kong protests as a meeting at a hotel. Then he chose to flee China, was not stopped at the airport. Maybe it has something to do with the US media spat, maybe just a random Chinese policing process. Not exactly Julian Assange. More after the news, the weather, sunny intervals and occasional showers. 27 degrees now, humidity is at 89%. RTHK. Welcome back. This is uh, Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Nicholas Gordon and me, Hugh Chiverson. We're talking about uh, journalists in the crossfire in the uh, US. We haven't talked too much about that. So far under the Australian journalists uh, in China and their situation. Uh, we're joined now by Ilaria Maria Sala, a writer based in Hong Kong. We were talking to other uh, uh, correspondents in the first part of the programme. Later, we're also going to be talking about uh, artists, performing artists, especially musicians, trying to make a living uh, in Hong Kong with Chris B from Underground Hong Kong. Uh, your thoughts are very welcome. Backchat at rthk.hk is our email address. Or call us 233-88266. Some uh, emails first. Let's m- maybe some related to our program uh, yesterday. Uh, some observations. Uh, Greg says... On policing, there is evidently a breakdown of discipline and professionalism in the ranks of the police force. The donning of paramilitary-style insignia and instances of senior officers being told by subordinates that their allegiance lies with the Ministry of State Security are among the signs. This is Carrie Lam's legacy. That is from uh, Greg. Thank you for that. Uh, Jacob says, Why didn't the Hong Kong leadership run a test and vote campaign? They're able to run a mass testing campaign during the same dates of poll. Why not run the testing at the polling centres? 
And uh, Leslie, who uh, says, Dear Backcheck, can you please ask Sophia Challenge your programme and ask her why on earth they are keeping swimming pools and I guess beaches too closed? Pools have chlorine in them, which kills the virus, so what is their excuse? I think the point would be about the changing rooms. I think that came up a little bit in the discussion uh, yesterday. Uh, so uh, here's one from Peter. It says, so now Australia and RTHK suddenly care about journalists, but only those who got into trouble in China. Where has all this mainstream passion for Australian journalists been hiding for the last decade? Reporting on Julian Assange and his court case has become a trickle. Let's look at the latest events. The US and UK have been keeping Australian journalist Julian Assange hostage for his groundbreaking reporting, exposing US war crimes and assisting Edward Snowden to expose evil US global mass surveillance programmes spying on every individual worldwide. A ridiculous Kafkaesque show trial is currently underway to present the illusion of justice to the world while a UN special rapporteur attests that Assange, an Australian journalist, has been subjected to torture. What China did was attempt to question two Australian reporters, Bill Bertels and Michael Smith, in relation to another Ch Australian journalist, Chang Lei, who is held by Chinese authorities. The government immediately took action to protect Bertels and Smith, letting them take shelter in diplomatic compounds and helping them return home, as governments are supposed to do. Yet the same government deliberately did nothing for Assange, rather the opposite. The stark difference in treatment of Australian journalists verse exposes Australians' message for its reporters. You are fair game for the American regime if you dare to play real journalists. That is from Peter. Alan says, whether Western media is biased against China is not the same thing at all as being government controlled. The idea that the New York Times, for instance, follows the instructions of the US government is absurd on its face. It covers the failings of the US government much more than it does of Beijing. China's idea of bias is that the media does not follow the spin they want. Look at the media directly controlled by Beijing. People's Daily, Global Times, China Daily. They're in lockstep with the CCP. They faithfully promote whatever the CCP want. Their op-ed pages are a swamp of absurd conspiracy theories demonising the West when that is the message of the day, a mirror image of Fox News. The difference is that Fox News is just one extreme and it reflects the views of the Murdochs, not the US government. You can find a spectrum of biases in the West. In China and increasingly in Hong Kong, only one point of view is allowed. Hugh keeps saying reporters are showing bias in their coverage. What do you mean? Interviewing dissidents? The op-eds are written in New York, not by the correspondents on the ground. Those thoughts from uh, Alan. So, Ilaria, we're this is clearly part of some like tit for tat retaliation between China and mostly the United States, but also some other Western countries involving um, involving journalists, involving things like the Confucius Institutes in the United States. Um, I guess is there? Do you see any way that this cycle breaks any time in the short term, or are we reaching some new equilibrium with far less you know access to information between China and um, and the West? I don't know if we are reaching some kind of equilibrium because we always have, and by the look of it, we will continue to have quite a lot of asymmetry in uh, what kind of news would reach, uh, let's say, comes outside of China and what kind of news can reach Chinese readers. Um, definitely this app doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. And uh, not just because uh, of the real points at hand, but also because there doesn't seem to be the willingness to compromise or to have dialogue from either side. It's not just 
Trump doing something or whatever other Western country doing something, but from the Chinese side as well, there doesn't seem at all to be um, a will to compromise, but to present itself as assertive, as uh, having a line that cannot be crossed, having a very firm attitude towards the more generally, I would say, the West. And I think one most important point that we have to keep in mind when we look at this, not so much what this means um, outside of China, but I think this has an important message that the leadership in China wants to give to its internal audience, to, to the Chinese people themselves. So um, this is one of the reasons why I don't see this resolving itself very quickly at all. What are your thoughts? Uh, that, that, that email from Peter talking about uh, 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 hypocrisy uh, in Australia, in particular, and also one from uh, Lou uh, uh, talking about the uh, the attitude to Julian Assange, uh, uh, ignoring an Australian journalist's plight uh, there, uh, and uh, also that there are restrictions on national security. Uh, in in Australia, which are comparable to the national security uh, restrictions in in Hong Kong, I think you can never be wrong if you say that any government has a level of hypocrisy. That is evident. I think. Um, no, once you said that, you have to make a big distinction between what a democracy is, what a free press is, and the rest. So, the fact that we can talk about Julian Assange, the fact that we can talk about um, what has been happening to him and what we think about it, the fact that there are countless organizations around the world that are um, putting out statements on his behalf and that newspapers in Australia as well as everywhere else are written about him shows you that there is a big difference between um, someone who is supported, let's say, or... But, people who are active in democratic country and uh, people who are in China accused of TV state secrets, etc. So that is one very important difference. There is a possibility to lobby, to campaign, to criticize, but does not exist in China. The other thing about national security law, it's the same. Um, you have now a government in Australia that is trying to push forward certain laws that many people in Australia disagree with. They have the possibility to change the government's ballot. They have before that the possibility to challenge this decision through courts, through newspapers, public marches, etc. So while no um, government is without hypocrisy, as I said at the beginning, we cannot decide that everything is the same or that people's ability to put pressure on the government to become more similar to what they desire it to be is the same all over the place. So I guess then, you know, assuming this continues, as you say, and, you know, the more journalists decide to leave China, more Chinese journalists leave the West, um, I guess, how do you expect, well, for, I guess, how do you expect reporting on China and, I guess, decisions in media organizations to change about how they talk about China, how they report on China, how they cover China? This is a big worry because, of course, um, one of the big boomerangs of these decisions on the part of China is that it's a lot more easier to write those positive stories 
many accusations are not to carry once you're in China, then we're outside of China. So if you want to have a more direct communication, a more direct view of what China is like, it's obviously a lot easier to do it from the country than from outside. The kind of news that we see outside of China are very often news based on, uh, let's say, more crude politics, more um, clear and cut economic ups and downs, and through this decision of the Chinese government to cut out so many foreign correspondents, we lack the more vital, the more humane, the more um, daily life that would make the whole relationship a whole lot easier and a whole lot uh, truer to what China is like today. So if you keep people outside, whether in Hong Kong with the dwindling possibility that we just talked about, or in Korea or uh, elsewhere, you really lose a lot. That would actually be also good for China's attempt to improve its image around the world. Can you imagine ever going back, though? Uh, You know, once sort of journalists have been identified as competents, it's hard to forget that, isn't it? I, I, I can't. Can you imagine going back to to the situation uh, that we used to have? Uh, you know, maybe those working for state media will now always be understood as being, I don't know, like a bit like consular officials or something like this. Or they uh, and you know, and maybe there'll be a similar kind of shift in 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 uh, perceptions in 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 China that uh, now journalists have become viewed as. Uh, you know, kind of participants in the conflict, uh, it'd be hard to unforget that. I mean, to forget that. Well, it's always impossible to predict the future. I think places change. China may change in one way or another. Uh, so will every other country. So that really remains to be seen. And rather analyze what we have now in place than predict the future. What we can see, of course, is the very immediate future, and the very immediate future doesn't look too good in terms of how much journalists can work uh, inside of China and how well Chinese journalists can be received outside. That said, again, there is an asymmetry which we cannot seem to set aside. It is um, a fact that Western media, or just in general, media outside of China and in democracies is extremely um, diverse. There's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different economic or political um, actors that are um, either opening newspapers or TV stations, etc. There is a much more clear line between what is being state-funded and what is being cheering the state. This distinction does not happen in China. So when you look at uh, Chinese media outlets, it's part of their mandate to support the government. It, so it is. I mean, I, I mean, could, should, should they even be thought of as journalists? You know, should these newspapers be considered in the same... Are they really newspapers like other places have newspapers or are they they're, they're really just 
propaganda, pure propaganda. Because if you look at CGTN and millions of clips on YouTube and, and things like this, it, it's very clear you only hear one voice completely, uh, and it's and it's the the line which is to be to be, to be taken. There is there is no diversity of opinion. There is no conflict or, or at all in any of these things. So as I say, could you even call them journalists? I think it's more complicated than that, mm-hmm. because on one hand, yes, in the past few years, there has been a decreasing space for investigative reporting in Chinese, uh, in Chinese media or for uh, a diversity of opinion. But um, it used not to be this way up to just a few years ago. There are so many people in China working inside uh, the media who are real journalists and want to do real journalism and who try always to um, push the envelope, as they say, or, or, or go as far as it is possible to go and who have a real desire to uh, understand their own country better and make their things understand better what is at stake. Of course, right now, what you have is a very clear distinction of what can be done. So anything that touches... Uh, let's say, power politics or just, you know, party politics is completely harmonized in a sense. There's hardly any room for uh, dissenting views or, or, or parallel views or something a bit more complicated while on uh, certain um, different issues. And I'm thinking about environment, I'm thinking about economy. Um, to some extent, before COVID, there was an attempt health issues to be uh, a bit more investigative. And uh, I think we should never forget the work that journalists are doing, which at times requires way more courage than uh, what um, many others are doing outside and uh, outside of China. And that comes from the very strong desire to be real journalists and mm. Yeah. Okay. So they are trying. All right. Uh, uh, a couple of uh, comments from uh, Andrew F, who says it was a bit rich for America to complain about expulsion of their journalists a few months ago in a tit for tat action, given the re- leader of the free world himself has repeatedly called these very publications the quote enemy of the people. The only difference between she and Trump is that he wishes he could expel the New York Times and Washington Post, or as he calls them, the failing corrupt New York Times and the Bezos Amazon Washington Post. That's uh, from uh, Andrew F. And uh, Paisley says, Hugh, you made a very valid point when you say that many of the Western media tend to write about China with a negative bias. I read, watch and listen to numerous English and American newspapers, TV and radio broadcasters every day. Uh, During last year's unrest in Hong Kong, almost all of them adopted a pro-protester stance, with the UK Times, New York Times, CNN and Monocle among those most culpable of a lack of objectivity uh, in their reporting. That comes uh, from uh, Paisley. Um, could you argue uh, that um, you know that this problem is uh, basically it's a problem of the credibility of the media, you know, domestic media as well as kind of uh, international accounts that uh, Trump and everyone else is wrestling with uh, <laughs> with. Uh, you know, fake news and so on. This is this is going on all over the world, and maybe what's happening in in China is really just kind of an echo of that. No, absolutely not. There is a huge difference uh, between wishing 
to close down a newspaper and being able to close down a newspaper. That is a basic, profound difference. Now, what Trump has been doing during his administration towards journalists and the media in general is by no means um, something that has fostered a positive environment for news gathering and news publishing. But again, there are elections in November, so we're going to see what happens then. And in spite of all the attacks against the media that have come from the White House, the media in the U.S. remains very free. And not just the media, not just official media, let's say, but also the Internet. Um, you can not in any way compare the freedom of expression that you have in environment like the American one with the one in China. It's just impossible, and it's really hypocritical to do so. Yes, Trump has been extremely aggressive against journalists. Journalists are working very hard to put out what is a different side of the story, and the White House has very little reach to change that. So there really is no comparison to be made. It's, it's quite in bad faith to do so. Well, Elara Mirasada, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning, a writer uh, based in Hong Kong. Thank you to all those who emailed and uh, commented uh, uh, as well. Uh, 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 I think there was a comment from... Uh, this is from uh, Paisley. Oh, I think we aired that one uh, earlier. So thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this morning. Uh, just before we go on, uh, a comment from uh, Bowen on... On uh, Carrie Lam, on executive-led government, and back to the controversy over the separation of powers. Bowen says, in the spirit of remedying dissatisfactory aspects of our governance, I hope the chief executive will not treat the following as just a squabble over words. The CE is right to say that our city has an executive-led government, but that does not preclude some form of separation of powers. In the same way that separation of powers is not absolute, executive-led government also should not be absolute. That is the case for a very good reason. If the executive branch becomes an absolute despot and refuses to listen to other opinions, it's bound to make many more mistakes than necessary, the best example being the extradition bill saga. If the executive had been more amenable in that case, we could have avoided what the CE herself termed the unforgivable havoc. Other recent examples include medical experts' advice several months ago over caution about the huge numbers of people exempted from testing and quarantine being let into the SAR, which then led to the third wave outbreak, and also the experts' advice on increased targeting testing of endangered groups, including those living and working in homes for the elderly, which is reportedly still not being done, despite the high death rate among the aged in the third wave. Let me assure the CE that mistakes which could be attributed to this type of executive-led governance occurred not just during her time as CE. Concerns which have been expressed about there being attempts to increase the powers of the legislative and judicial branches so as to turn Hong Kong into an independent state fall into the realm of fiction, if not hallucination. First, nobody is asking for the other two branches' powers to be increased, although there are understandable worries that they will be curtailed. Secondly, there are extremely few separatists in Hong Kong, and those who believe that there is already some form of separation of powers in Hong Kong do not fall into that category. One can easily notice in the media, including 
including Radio 3 platforms, that these are often mature and educated people who just want Hong Kong to remain stable and successful. And my personal take is that they just see the maintenance of some form of separation of powers as a bullock against our cities sliding into a worsening of the type of heedless, if not reckless, governance that we have seen occasionally in recent years. That is from Bowen. Thank you very much indeed. Finally today, as mentioned, we want to talk a little bit about uh, artists, uh, uh, musicians in particular, uh, in Hong Kong and uh, how they are faring uh, with all the COVID restrictions and so many venues uh, being closed. We're joined now in our central studio by Chris B from Underground Hong Kong. Good morning to you, Chris. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us. So, so you did a survey. You, you took it on yourself to do a survey of, uh, of musicians around town. Uh, what did you find? What did they tell you? Uh, well, I mean... Um we actually were quite surprised. We had... Uh, is this OK? No, uh, yeah, could you take your phone away or yeah. whatever it is? Thank you very much. Sorry. <laughs> OK, uh, that's me. Yeah. OK. Go on. So, um, one, two, one, two. Yeah, take it away. OK. Yep. So we actually didn't know. I mean, we'd, we'd heard about some musicians really struggling, like being evicted. So, and we guessed there were about 50 musicians, like full-time working ones. So I thought, well, let's just do a survey. Let's find out. Let's ask. And uh, we'll make it anonymous because then people are more likely to put the truth, hopefully. And uh, we had 646 replies. 93% of them are Hong Kong permanent residents. Um, it was 62% do music full time and like for over five years, right? So we're talking a few hundred musicians who fall into that category. And... Um, and quite sadly, we found out like something like 3% are homeless and 5% are being evicted. And that was at the beginning of August. And now, up to today, it's been 161 days uh, with a, uh, that live music has been banned with a 27-day window opportunity um, in June to July when they could play. But, you know, working musicians don't necessarily have a gig every day, right? So... Yeah, it's quite tough. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, that, so we did the survey and we were really quite surprised. Even the musicians themselves were surprised. Like a lot of, you know, like musicians were like, you had 600 replies. So I think, um, and then, then the next step was to bring that awareness to the media, which we did um, through, you know, RTHK, South China Morning Post, uh, Harbour Times. And then we thought, you know, maybe the people in the government don't know because the musicians themselves are surprised, right? So then um, a few of us, we worked together on an email and I sent an email to each of the legislative councillors because um, I also contacted Mr. Bernard Chan um, from Exco because he's in culture. He did say he would pass on the message, um, but I just felt like, you know, like let's let's get it out there that these are self-employed, you know, full-time musicians who are not, permitted to work they cannot work are, are, are they are they eligible to get any money There's, there is a i should say this is kind of coincides with an effort by uh, ma fun kwok I, yes. I think and others to help some of the performing uh, associations including chinese opera uh, but uh, can they get money from the government uh, well the, the thing was the they had a self-employment thing right in the ess for seven thousand five hundred um but you yeah. have to have the right mpf which was for self-employed so a lot of these musicians don't have the correct MPF. So, you know, most of them didn't get it. Um, I actually saw Mr. Ma um, on Monday. Wow, that was just yesterday. It seems like a long time ago. Um, day before oh, the yesterday. day before yesterday. Yeah. Okay. And he mentioned this. And he also mentioned he 
um, is thinking of proposing that IFPI, the International Federation of, um, you know, like it's phonographic, like it's, yeah, yeah, phonographic, yeah. to distribute to its members. But out of the working musicians, I'd say maybe ten percent are members because they deal with like. The big names, you know, like your Alan Tam and your, you know, Sandy concerts. Um, so, and, and that's what's become apparent from doing the survey and talking to lots and lots of musicians. There's many different communities and organisations and unions and societies, and each each one is kind of working independent from the others. Although I, when I was doing the survey, I contacted everyone and I've kept everyone as much as I can updated with the information, the data we found, who we've been talking to, what we're trying to suggest. Um, I think it, that that's part of the problem. So the government has to work out who to, if they were going to help fund, you know, support in some way these self-employed musicians, how are they going to do it? So the politicians would ask us at these meetings, what suggestions, what proposals, do we have a concrete proposal? So in the end, we gave one to Mr. Mafung Kwok yesterday, suggesting a similar method to like um, they've been doing for the massage parlours, basically doing through the companies um, that hire and, um, you know, musicians for events. Um, I want to ask a question about the, about the demographics of, of the working musicians in Hong Kong, I guess. What are they playing? Where are they playing? Um, I assume like these these aren't like concert musicians playing at the at the Hong Kong Phil, although I assume these are part of this group too. I think yeah, there's some of them. Yeah. There's um, people who play at um, weddings and functions mm -hmm. at wine and dine. That's sort of big public events to private events. Uh, there's pe um, musicians who play at smaller venues, like you get the live music venues in Taigun Fringe Club, um, and Lang Kwai Fong, Wan Chai, and all over Hong Kong bars that have live music. Um, yeah, and. I we because there's been some classical musicians in our group as well, and they also yeah un unless they're with a a big you know <laughs> arts development council approved because that was another thing the arts development council got a lot of funding, but most of these musicians couldn't tap into it because they weren't performing at a government venue. Is that the problem that the, you're talking about? Kind of musicians who are freelancers, who are yes. who are not sort of members of recognised associations and so on. Yes. And if they're on the fringes or whatever, they they're, they're losing out. Yeah. What would what would you? How can the government help those people though? Uh, the government, I mean, could re uh, make it um, easier for them to be recognised as self-employed because, okay. I mean, these musicians, like for a lot of companies, even like the underground, you know, if we're working on corporate events or big events, we will hire a band and there's agreements and payments made. There's, there's all proof. There's a paper trail. So if the government could let, you know, companies apply on behalf of the musicians and then... Fingers crossed that the companies will pass it on to the musicians. <laughs> um, that's because, because as I said, it's so it's so fractured with so many different unions and associations. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you very much indeed for joining us from under, uh, Underground Hong Kong. Best of luck uh, with that. A couple of comments to uh, finish off. First of all, Matthew uh, responding to correspondent Lou. 
Uh, I don't know if Lou is male or female, but the the uh, the, the book is uh, sorry. This message is written uh, as if it's uh, a male, so I'll read it as it's written. Uh, Matthew says it's great that correspondent Lou can share with us that he is speechless regarding Australia's national security law without a second thought for his personal safety or security. If he expressed similar criticisms of anything related to Hong Kong's new national security law, he would be subject to arrest and effectively extrajudicial legal process, no matter where he said it in the world or what his nationality is. I am genuinely pleased that Lou can do this. That's from uh, Matthew. And uh, finally, uh, Leslie has a uh, um, pretty good comeback on the issue of uh, uh, swimming pools. Uh, an earlier email regarding the continued closure of swimming pool and beaches. You mentioned that there might be a problem with the changing rooms. If this is the excuse, then how can the use of changing rooms at gyms, which are open, be any different? That's very true, Leslie. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Paul, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us this morning. I'm sorry, Nicholas uh, uh, Nicholas Gordon, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this morning. My mind going back to an old uh, 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 back chat uh, staffer. The uh, weather forecast for today before we go, sunny intervals and occasional showers, isolated thunderstorms around at first, and it's going to be hot with temperatures up to 31. One degrees. There's a thunderstorm warning in effect until at least 10.30 this morning. 28 degrees at the moment and a relative humidity now of 87%. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion and I'm usually quite laid back. But you can count me in to fight COVID-19. Here are my tips. Don't go to work and seek medical advice promptly if you're unwell. Avoid eating out or going out if it's not necessary. Keep at least one meter apart from others and avoid contact with people who show symptoms. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. These are the tips for us to prevent COVID-19. 9.33, the news now with Samantha Butler. A tourism professor says opening up travel bubbles with other countries won't happen quickly and will be very difficult to arrange. The government has said it's in discussions with 11 countries on the topic, including Singapore, Japan, Thailand, Germany and France. Professor Brian King from Polytechnic University says the government should focus more on Macau and the Greater Bay Area as tourism will probably restart closer to home. An infectious disease expert says it would be better to relax social distancing measures once the government has finished its COVID-19 community testing program. The government's testing scheme finishes on Friday, but it's suggested it may extend it. Dr Joseph Jung was commenting after the government announced an easing of measures from Friday, which include allowing a maximum of four people at public gatherings and to sit together in restaurants and the opening of some leisure venues. And a major trial of a coronavirus vaccine developed by Oxford University and AstraZeneca has been put on hold worldwide because of a suspected serious adverse reaction in a volunteer in Britain. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. And by oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults and not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Wednesday. Morning, Bruce.